We're coming to the end of 2016, and I wanted to make an end-of-year pitch for support for the SRB podcast. Since February 2015, I've conducted over 59 interviews on topics as wide-ranging as Putinism, post-war Kiev, Belarusian nationalism, Stalinist terror, Russian punk rock, Russian porn, Soviet gypsies, and many, many more. The topics have been an eclectic mix to give as complex a picture of Eurasian history, society, and culture as I can. I've interviewed some incredibly knowledgeable people who've generously given their time to offer us all interesting and thoughtful discussions. I think it's safe to say there isn't a podcast on the region like it. Though the podcast is free to listeners, it's not free to make. The SRB podcast is a one-person operation. Each episode from start to finish takes about 15 hours to produce. Reading on average a book a week is like being back in grad school. Editing out all the ums, kind ofs, you knows, and writes take up to five to six hours alone. Then there are hosting and equipment costs. So if you like what you hear and find the discussions valuable, especially at a time where thoughtful discourse about the region is so scarce, please consider becoming a monthly patron or making a one-time donation at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support. Now on with the show. Hello and welcome to the SRB Podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. Most Russia watchers ignore labor, labor conflict, and class in Russia. It's not surprising, it's just unfortunate especially if you consider the radical reconfiguration of Russia's class structure over the last 25 years, the massive industrial relics that continue to dot Russia's landscape, and their impact on many Russians' daily lives. What is the state of Russia's industrial labor today? How do we understand class and the Russian context? What about labor unions? And why has there been an increase in labor conflict, and what does it all mean? I've asked Stephen Crawley to come on this week's podcast to provide some answers. Stephen Crawley is a professor of politics at Oberlin College, where he researches transitions to democracy and capitalism in Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union. His current work focuses on how post-communist unions face the challenges from past institutional and ideological legacies, current political conditions, and the constraints placed by the global economy. He's the co-editor with Terry Carraway and Maria Lorena Cook of Working Through the Past, Labor and Authoritarian Legacies in Comparative Perspective, published by Cornell University Press. His most recent article is Russian Labor Protest in Challenging Economic Times, in issue 182 of the Russian Analytical Digest. Here's Stephen Crowley. So I thought we'd start our conversation about uh, Russian labor and Russian labor movement by having you describe your research interests in post-Soviet labor and political economy. And what types of questions drive your research? Well, just starting, uh, going back a bit, my interest started as a college student when Ronald Reagan was president. And then the concern was, you know, might there be World War III and why were all of these interventions and proxy wars happening around the globe. And the question I started asking myself is, what is at the core of this conflict that people are willing to destroy the planet over it? 
And I became fascinated with the Soviet Union and began to ask myself, uh, you know, is this really a different sort of place? I, I was frustrated with, with the Kremlinology, the focus on high politics. And I started looking at questions like, you know, is there really, has the Soviet, Soviet Union really solved the problem of unemployment? Is it really a better place for workers or is this just ideological fiction? And then once the Soviet Union started changing and I was doing my research as a graduate student, the, the questions began to shift. How would workers respond to Gorbachev's perestroika? Uh, and then what impact would the introduction of capitalism have on their lives? How would they respond to that? For a time, my research shifted to Eastern Europe when I looked at the legacies of communism and the impact they had on labor unions, on labor relations, particularly as countries began to join the European Union and what impact that might have on things like labor migration, on trying to create a European social model in Eastern Europe as well as Western Europe. And I think the, some of the consequences of that are playing out right now in Poland, Hungary, the politics there, and Brexit, and so on. But more recently, my focus has returned to Russia. And in particular, I'm interested, I'm, I'm working on a project now focusing on what I would call the in industrial geography of Russia. The many Soviet-era workplaces that have been kept open during the many dramatic changes over the past 25 years. And now that the oil boom is over, how are workers faring? How are they responding? Will these workplaces be kept open? And if not, what are the consequences? Well, those are definitely some issues we're going to talk about today. But before we get to that, you know, it's safe to say that labor issues are virtually ignored by most observers of contemporary Russia. There's very little written on, in English. Uh, on it, you find a bit more in the Russian press, but even so, it it seems to be a ignored topic for the most part. So, what does a focus on labor and class politics and labor conflict illuminate about Russia today, from your perspective? Well, you know, as they say, the more things change, and I know you've written about this, Sean, about the excessive focus on Kremlinology once again. Uh, and it's understandable why Putin gets so much attention, but Russia is a large and complex society, and so much gets missed. So if we consider a broad definition of labor, people working for wages and salaries without much of a supervisory role, then you're talking about the bulk of the population. And as for labor conflict, conflict generally reveals the fault lines in society, the fault lines that may be covered over during times of relative prosperity, but they're there nonetheless, and then they get exposed when things, when there are greater economic challenges. And in terms of politics, Putin has styled himself as a champion of Russia's working class. And many presume that this is his strongest base of support. But I think the reality is, is a bit more complicated than that. And labor protest is a good place to look for that more complicated picture. And, and why don't you talk about that a bit, that, that complicated picture you get from labor protests and, and it, its relationship to Putin, who's, who has positioned himself as the champion of the Russian labor, uh, Russian, work, Russian working class? Yeah, that's a good, a good point. So, yeah, thinking back to the protests that happened in 2011, 2012, the Bolotnaya protests, there was this well-known moment for Russian observers when during one of his annual call-in shows, this guy named Igor Kolmanskik, a, a foreman from the Ural Wagenzavod, the Ural, Ural tractor factory, got on and said, look, if, if the militia can't handle these protesters, these middle-class protesters, then me and the boys, me and the Mujiki will come in uh, to protect stability. 
Uh, and that, and, and then Putin, you know, promoted this quite a bit. He even literally promoted this guy Kolmanskik without any experience at all to be the, the what's the pole pred, the, the, uh, like the representative know, or uh, yeah, yeah, presidential yeah. representative for the, for the Urals federal district. Exactly. So it just is a symbol of this working class support. Well, th again, things are more complicated today. Ural Wagen Zavod is threatened with bankruptcy. Uh, workers are going on temporary, you know, forced leave. Uh, there are wage arrears there. So are workers at the Ural tractor factory still thinking that they're ready to protect stability? Is this what stability looks like? So I think that there are real problems for Putin uh, that, that are covered over in some of these more symbolic approaches to saying, you know, I'm the, I'm the protector of the working class interests. Yeah, and we'll talk more about how you see the increase in labor protests a little later on in the conversation. But let's go back to the beginning to some of your initial questions about the place of Soviet workers and in relation to the perestroika. So what place did labor have at the end of the Soviet system? And, and how did they can laborers and workers contribute to Russia's political and economic transformation in the late 1980s as par participants in what you called in one article, perestroika from below? Yeah, that, that phrase was actually from my, my friend and colleague, Louis Siegelbaum. But, but yeah, so if you think about it, labor was at the center of the Soviet system, not only in terms of ideology, but in terms of sheer numbers, in terms of their economic importance. The Soviet Union was a coal and steel economy, and in some ways it was a, a working class society. And then when Gorbachev came to power, he began to criticize Brezhnev's stagnation. Uh, he wanted to replace that with acceleration. A major focus was on labor productivity. Uh, and as perestroika continued, there was a lot of talk about rewriting what some have called the social contract between state and society, where workers had full employment, they had guaranteed some benefits. And, uh, you know, and the, and the way the workers looked at it, the, the joke was, we pretend to work and they pretend to pay us. So you're going to replace that with at least some elements of, of a market system. So many people predicted that workers would rise up in, in protest against that. But what was surprising was that in 1989, when the miners went on strike throughout the entire Soviet Union, they, again, they had said, we haven't seen perestroika yet. We're supporting perestroika from below. So rather than trying to prevent change, they wanted to see more of it because it wasn't happening at the level of their workplace. And when I did my own field work in 1991, the miners went on strike again, though this time they said rather than having a purely economic strike supporting perestroika, they said this was a purely political strike. They wanted to do away with the entire Soviet system. They had become that radicalized just in two years. And they even said they wanted a market system, which just boggled the mind since the coal industry was the single most heavily subsidized industry in the Soviet Union. So the good thing for me was that the miners being on strike, they had nothing better to do than to answer questions from an American graduate student. So I just sort of asked them, so how do you square this circle? What do you mean by a market economy? And after talking with them, pretty quickly it became clear that, well, for one thing, they had never experienced a market economy, so they had no idea what it was. Uh, and their conception of a market had nothing to do with supply and demand. It had much more to do with a kind of Marxist labor theory of value. We're miners, we work hard, we risk our lives producing something of value. So the miners said they even wanted privatization, and when I said, asked them who would control the mines, they, they own the mines, and they said, well, who else? It would be us. We would do it. 
in a form of workers' control. And in a sense, the, the miners were fighting for the ideals of 1917 that they felt weren't realized. But the problem, of course, was that they were fighting the communists. They saw the communist bureaucrats as the oppressors and the exploiters. And so they did not could not call this socialism or anything like that. And in fact, they allied with Yeltsin to help bring down the end of the Soviet system. I was even, I just as an aside, an anecdote, I remember being in, in a mine in uh, the Donbass in Makayevka, and I was with a workers' committee that had literally taken over control of the mine. And the manager of the mine, the, the, the mine director, was circling around this, <laughs> this table where the miners were sitting and just muttering to himself. And the miners would say, I ah, don't pay any attention to him. He, he works for us now. But so, I mean, this is really interesting because it is, a, you know, a topsy-turvy thing in, in, from what we would expect, right? So they're appropriating the idea of the market, but of course, they're tuning it to their own understanding of what they want for their work and for the, the benefits of their work. And of course, they don't really have a language besides that because the language of socialism and communism is so discredited in their eyes, or so it seems. So... In this effort, do you do you think that this feeling was particular amongst the miners you you talked to, or did you did you have the sense that this was a broader view amongst, say, industrial laborers in the late Soviet period, and and also why didn't they form a more political block in those tumultuous days of like 1991 and beyond? Yeah, very good questions. So when I remember uh, some years ago, I was presenting this research uh, at a conference and uh, David Ost, who had studied Poland solidarity, was the commentator on the panel. And when I, when I presented this, he was just, oh my God, this is exactly what happened with solidarity in Poland. Uh, that the workers, you know, began demanding things like self-management and so on. But again, because the communists were the enemies, <laughs> they, they needed to find different allies. They needed to find different language. They needed to find a different ideology. And, uh, you know, as we know, the, the solidarity of the workers helped bring about shock therapy and the very uh, economic program that lost uh, many, you know, lost jobs for many of them. And it was something very similar for the, the coal miners uh, in, in the Soviet Union, in Russia, and so on. They did form independent uh, trade unions. They became radicalized in many ways, but they saw uh, Yeltsin initially as, as their ally. They saw the market as their ally. And of course, things turned out quite differently uh, later on. Now, interestingly, when you talk about other workers, one of, part of my research was looking at what happened in steel factories in the same regions, because they placed the steel factories next to the coal because they need the coking coal and so on. And there, it was as if workers were in another world. They were just stuck in this enterprise paternalism, and they did not mobilize. So it really took the, the miners first went on strike with an economic strike in 1989, but having overcome that collective action problem. Once they went on strike, once they organized themselves, then they began asking these questions, the, you know, the internal Russian questions, who's to blame and what is to be done? And that didn't happen really with, with other workers who, who remain pretty, pretty atomized and, and caught in a kind of paternalistic system. Well, you know, as we know that the collapse of the Soviet Union, you know, transformed the entire face of, of Russia. What particular impact did it have on labor unions in Russia's industrial working class? I mean, you've already hinted at this, but what was the, the transformative effects throughout the 1990s? 
It's hard to overstate how dramatic that was. And workers went from literally being on a pedestal in terms of Soviet ideology to basically becoming obstacles to the new social order. And they went over almost overnight from conditions of a labor shortage, where despite all the political restrictions of the Soviet system, workers actually had considerable power, both on the shop floor and also within the labor market. Because there was a labor shortage, workers could, they weren't really afraid of getting fired. They could go from job to job and look for better benefits and so on. Uh, but then that shifted dramatically to conditions of surplus labor, of unemployment. The interesting thing is that unemployment never reached high levels, not given the huge drop in economic output. So instead of jobs being flexible, it was wages that were flexible. Uh, workers got paid less. They were sent on unpaid leave. They were paid in kind rather than cash. Or in the case of the wage arrears crisis in the late 1990s, they simply weren't paid, paid at all. And I'm sure most uh, listeners to the podcast know what happened to workers in the 1990s. And impoverishment, alcoholism, increased death rates, uh, again, wage arrears. I mean, they, they just reached dramatic proportions uh, in the late 1990s. And workers began to take desperate measures in order to get paid, blocking railways, highways, going on hunger strikes, even self-immolation. And when the market system didn't turn out the way the miners had hoped, they weren't getting paid. They, they went to Moscow. Uh, and in 1998, they camped out in front of government buildings. They banged their helmets in front of the cobblestones at every half hour just so that the uh, government officials would not forget that they were there. And that was the time when the Russian government had to decide who, who, who of our creditors are going to get paid. Are we going to pay the international creditors? Or are we going to pay the miners? And it was one of the factors that led to the default of the ruble in 1998. And what about labor unions? What, what happened? Because, you know, un, of course, under the Soviet system, all the labor unions were concentrated under the, the state apparatus. So what happened with labor unions as a result of the collapse? Well, labor unions were a, a sort of strange, at least to Western observers, were a strange thing under the Soviet system. They were part of the, basically, that the enterprise structure, they were just another form, another arm of management. They were mainly involved in handing out welfare benefits and, and much of, for, for much of the industrial enterprises, uh, this was sort of the way that the welfare state was distributed and it was distributed through the trade unions. So trade unions were not seen as advocates for workers in a confrontation or even a negotiation with, with managers, but they were on the side of management and, and sought to hand out things for, for workers and so on. And even though at the end of the Soviet Union, the, the FNPR, the main union federation in, in Russia, left over from the communist period, uh, they, they were actually the biggest example of civil society after the collapse of communism. Uh, maybe the Orthodox Church would be the only other challenger. But they, they tried very hard to change, but this was just a huge bureaucracy. And workers were used to going to them for benefits. And then when you're not getting paid at all, they, you know, continued to look at them. Oh, well, help us out, you know, with, with uh, something because uh, we need to eat. Uh, but so unions, they never became these advocates for workers uh, and, and uh, negotiators for workers in a kind of conflict situation with managers. There was an attempt to impose a Western European style social partnership on Russian industrial relations. But this became a, a just a very weak and ineffectual system. 
basically because in Western Europe, social partnership happened when workers were very disruptive and capitalist employers had a real incentive to try and create social peace. How do we continue to, to operate? How do we be profitable without cutting in workers in a certain way? And when workers were so devastated in Russia in the 1990s, that simply wasn't an issue. The employers had no incentive to negotiate with workers. They were simply too weak. So that they sort of grafted these institutions of, of social partnership onto the Russian context, and it simply made no sense. Nowadays, the FNPR is just a huge bureaucracy, and it gets its main strength from being having access to channels of power in the Kremlin, that it is a sort of the official voice of workers, and it can, can talk to Putin occasionally and so on. But if you ask most workers, and, and huge numbers of people uh, on paper are still members of trade unions, of, of the FNPR, but if you ask them in surveys, are you, are you a union member, uh, most people say no. They, they just continue to get their dues deducted. So how do Russian workers see labor unions now? Like, what is their understanding of labor unions? Do they see any value in forming labor unions outside of the, the federal, federation of industrial union structure? Or do, is the whole idea of a labor union a sour thing? Yeah. So the short answer is yes. <laughs> if you look at surveys of various political and social institutions and whether people place trust in them and so on, unions are pretty much near the bottom. One of, one of the last sorts of things. Uh, I mean, even, you know, sometimes lower than parliament, which doesn't do very well. Uh, so workers do not see much positive support or any real reason for labor unions. Now, there are alternative trade unions. There are the unions that appear, that they first began to appear in, at the end of the Soviet Union. The coal miners created their own trade unions. And around the same time, you had a number of other sectors where independent alternative unions appeared. Pilots, air traffic controllers, uh, rail workers, dock workers. Interestingly, these are all workers in, in, the tr in transportation, and they had real kind of a real strategic power. They could shut down the economy if they went on strike. Uh, and today, those are about the only groups that still have alternative trade unions, independent trade unions. The exception are auto workers who became assertive in the mid-2000s as the economy began booming, and they became quite assertive and so on, both in uh, Russian uh, and also foreign-owned auto plants. But the situation has changed. The auto industry in Russia is not doing well. So they are, um, they're, they're not doing it as well either for obvious reasons. Uh, so the alternative unions make about 5% of the unionized workforce. They have been shut out by, by law uh, in 2001, shortly after Putin became president. He was able to rewrite the labor code together with the FNPR. He, they created a kind of compromise where it became easier to fire workers but it also gave the FNPR a near monopoly on worker representation, made it much harder for alternative unions to, to form and to negotiate. And also, um, it also made strikes uh, nearly illegal in Russia, very hard to carry out. Uh, so the, the alternative unions are, are militant when they, they do tend to be very protest prone and, and, uh, and, and look at, you know, talk in sort of class conflict type terms, but they're, they're marginalized. 
Actually, since you brought up class, let's talk about that because you've recently written about the question of class in Russia. And, and this is an interesting question, I think, because, because the class structure of Russia has changed so much in the last 25 years. Uh, it's difficult to get a sense of, well, what is the stratification? What is class identity? And what kind, what categories and modes of analysis do we even understand class in Russia today? Do, do we, can we still understand class in a, in Marxist terms or understand class and, and other types of, of, of theories? So how, how should we understand the concept of class and how has Russia's class structure transformed since 1991? Well, I would say, for one thing, we in the social sciences generally do ourselves a great disservice by not engaging in, in class analysis. Uh, it may not be the only approach, but it's one of the most fundamental. Now, it was, it was decades ago now, but I remember as an undergrad taking a class in political sociology, and the three big figures were Marx, Weber, and Durkheim. Now, there have been other approaches since, uh, postmodernist, feminist, ecologist, or, uh, rationalist, but one operates with a real intellectual handicap if one ignores the Marxist approach to understanding the dynamics of a capitalist society. And it's totally understandable why intellectuals in post-communist societies, and in Russia, would reject that. They had a sort of anodyne version of Marxism shoved down their throats for many years. But the problem was that they sort of, they, they got rid of that, and then they accepted a rather anodyne Western approach to understanding class. And I think the prime example is after 1991, most Russian sociologists became rather obsessed with the middle class. And they defined this in terms of kind of a social stratification way of looking at pay, education, culture, lifestyle, and so on. And in some ways, they, they were sort of champions of this notion of the middle class. It was going to be a kind of a new class. It was going to lead Russia to a bright, shining future. And obviously, it didn't turn out that way. And in reality, this was always a fairly small group. Uh, it did not have much political power. And even today, with the economic downturn, uh, its, its ranks are being thinned again with declining incomes. And I think a different sort of class analysis would have alerted folks to the dramatic class formation and deformation that was happening as you move from communism to capitalism. I mean, for one thing, you were creating capitalism, but without capitalists. You had to create an entire new class of property owners. And, and you had this old nomenclature that had tremendous power and, and a certain significant amount of privilege, but they had that power and privilege only if they maintained their positions. Everything was tied up with their positions, hence the stability of cadres, as they said in the Brezhnev days. But when the most enterprising of the nomenclatura seized the opportunity to transform that power into private property, one that wasn't tied to their position, that could be bequeathed to their offspring, that could be transformed into different forms of capital, that could be monetized and, and stored offshore so they could become some of the richest people on the planet and also some of the most powerful. And, and despite all the changes that and all the power that Putin's amassed, uh, that's, that's still a class that must, that's got to be reckoned with. And then as for workers, uh, it, it even with the impoverishment and even with the weakness, I said, they, they still had an impact. So the Soviet enterprises were the very center of so many communities in Russia. And the work collectives were extremely important. And they could not simply be shut down. That was simply beyond the pale. 
So shock therapy could uh, take a number of huge steps, uh, market prices leading to hyperinflation, rapid and mass privatization, but radical reformers could not take the step of real bankruptcies, of closure of enterprises. There was a palpable fear of social explosion. So then you ended up issuing credits, barter and so on, anything to keep these places open uh, and creating a kind of a virtual economy of some set. And, and one could argue that's how shock therapy came to an end. And what about issues of class identity? Because here again, you know, in the Soviet system, class identity was on the forefront, right? It was part of the national projection of itself was that it was the, the state of the working class and people should identify themselves as working people, as laborers. Where does class identity stand now with the rise of the development of this new entrepreneurial class or capitalist class, but also with the very broad declassing of the former Soviet industrial class? Well, I think I think that there, there's there's some parallels here I see with our own politics, which would be the subject of another podcast. But the sort of this sort of uh, allergy, in a way, for intellectuals to come to terms with with issues of class and particularly class anger and and so on. So again, the the Russian intelligentsia focused very much on on the middle class and, and the professional class for obvious reasons. But they missed the fact that many Russians themselves were, were experiencing the, the changes in terms of these class transformations and, and, in a sense, exploitation, even if they didn't have class language to, to articulate it in. And, and, and this creates opportunities for others, uh, those in power, to, to use things uh, to play the nationalist card, to play, uh, I wouldn't call it racism, but, but certainly, you know, for the right wing to fill that sort of gap. But I think that many Russians, everyday Russians, experienced the world very much in class terms. They saw people becoming tremendously wealthy while they became impoverished. And there simply wasn't the language around the, the, the political, certainly in the 1990s, uh, that the liberals failed to address these issues. And then uh, with the rise of Putin, Putin channeled it in a different direction. We will, Russia will rise off its knees. We will make Russia great again. It's the nation. It's not class. That's what we need to focus on. But at the same time, we are seeing a certain nostalgia for the the 1970s, for example. Do you think some of that nostalgia is driven by nostalgia for the status of working people being restored? It's a good question. I think certainly, certainly the idea that 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 communities and so on that there was uh, again parallels with our own our own political system make uh, the country great again. That, that things were more stable, that, that yes, we had jobs with, with pay, we could afford this. So maybe things weren't in the store shelves. And, and with nostalgia, we sort of forget the problem of shortages and, and all the lacks of freedom that we had. But, but things were, were stable. Uh, you could count on, a, on, on at least stability for not only you, but for your family as well. And certainly for, for working people, there wasn't this feeling of impoverishment. There was a real there was a real bottom. You weren't. You were not going to fall that far. Let's talk about another aspect of that because you've also recently examined Russian monotowns, um, especially since the economic crisis of two thousand eight and two thousand nine. Uh, talk about the monotown, what it represents, what it's like, and, and what challenges they pose for the Putin system. 
Yeah, some mono towns are one industry towns left over from the Soviet era where when entire cities were created around a single enterprise. And according to the Russian government, there's about roughly 300 of them, and they're spread around the vast space of Russia. And few of these enterprises have solid prospects of ever being profitable in the global marketplace. They were created to meet the needs of planners, uh, national security, whatever it might have been, not to be competitive in global capitalist markets. And the model towns created attention, they grabbed attention in 2008 during the last economic crisis. There was this one uh, protest in Pikalyovo where the, I forget it was the gas or the hot water was shut off for the lack of payment because the factories in the town had, had shut down. Workers and residents blockaded a major highway. Putin flew in in a helicopter to dress down oligarch uh, Deripaska on television and demanded that he sign some documents and then demanded that, Putin, that, that, that he give Putin's pen back. And there was a lot of talk that, then that these protests might spread. And the government created a commission to monitor the monotowns, and they put them in categories, uh, green, yellow, and red, based on their risk of worsening social economic conditions, as they put it. And they put the FSO, the Federal Protective Service, in charge of carrying out surveys uh, just to see about how explosive the conditions were in these places. The, the monotowns, they, they vary widely. There's, some of them are very large. Toliati in Samara is the largest, 700,000 people. Some of them are much, much smaller. Some of them are very isolated. Some of them are close, closer to provincial centers and so on. But even during the boom years, they didn't restructure the monotowns. They just kept them operating. So some people left, but they basically kept, as, as Cliff Gaddy puts it, they, they kept the lights on. They, and they created these plans. Well, we'll have plans for, you know, each monotown can submit a proposal for how they're going to diversify. And these plans included things like tourism and industrial parks, special economic zones. And some of these things were just, boy, just real. I mean, you're just not going to create tourism in the middle of a bleak you know, machine building factory town you know, in the middle of nowhere. Uh, so, so these rely on a lot of, of subsidies just to keep them afloat. And the subsidies, are they coming from the provincial government or are they coming from directly from Moscow? They come in a variety of ways. And, and some people argue that beyond the official subsidies, there are also, during the boom years, the oil and gas industries and, and the industries that were doing well were asked to support these, these factories, to, to rely on local suppliers, national suppliers, and so on and a way to kind of distribute the, the oil and gas rents to keep these places open. And, and there's resistance to, to simply to really restructuring them. Uh, the regional elites, they don't want to see them disappear because they lose power and so on if they close down. Uh, there, there's been studies by Timothy Fry and others on how United Russia has relied on the monotowns in particular for votes because workers are entirely dependent upon these workplaces. And even the workers themselves, I've heard people say about, say, Norilsk, you know, up above the Arctic Circle, that they paid workers, they gave workers money, leave, go, go buy something in, in the south of Russia. And, and workers left, but then when the money ran out, they went back to Norilsk. Let me ask you another question about the monotown, because my understanding of these towns, these factory towns in the Soviet system is they're not only the place of employment, but they're also the center of infrastructure. 
in the sense of heating, water, electricity. How much has that connection been severed? You know, are these factories still also providing the social infrastructure of these towns or has that been decoupled and mostly privatized at this point? Yeah, it's a good question. So yeah, so they refer to these in Russian as, as city forming enterprises. You know, the famous example would be Magnitogorsk, where you started with, you know, basically a swamp and, and workers living in tents and then barracks. And then eventually you had a huge city built around the world's largest steel mill. And so the infrastructure, so that the, the enterprises created the infrastructure. And in the Soviet period, they, they, they owned it, they controlled it, and so on. And it, in the post-Soviet period, the idea was to move it to the municipalities and so on. But th that's really, it's almost a, a kind of a fiction in a way, because if you're a small town that is totally dependent on the workplace, on the enterprise for uh, revenue, for employment, uh, it doesn't really matter who formally owns the infrastructure without the factory the entire town shuts down. So, so this, these are entire communities dependent upon these, these workplaces. And, and recently, the FSO, again, this Federal Protective Service that is charged with carrying out these surveys, last December, they reported that in 60% of the monotowns, inhabitants found their conditions, well, 60% of monotown inhabitants found their conditions to either be unbearable or bearable with difficulty. So, so real problems. So in a way, by even shutting these factories down, by ending the subsidies and shutting the unprofitable ones down, they would have to literally restructure the, the geography of the, the social infrastructure and the geography of the town. Or, or they would have to relocate the, you know, entire communities to someplace else. And then the question would be, where? Where, where are the jobs? Where are the houses? How do you do this? Uh, do you keep them open uh, you know, indefinitely? You know, what's what's the plan? Do you keep them on life support for years on end? So this is this isn't just a simple question of, say, markets where, you know, you shut down, unpro let unprofitable businesses collapse and let profitable ones thrive because here you have it so embedded that you can't just shut it down because you basically leave people essentially without water and without heat. Right, exactly, exactly. And this has been, been difficult for Russia to do even on, in, in the best circumstances. I mean, there just there have been very few just outright closures of large factories in Russia outside, even outside of the monotowns. So there, there have been some, but but they're 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 relatively few. Now, over the last year or so, there has been quite a growth in in labor protests in Russia. Most of it, of course, spurned by wage arrears and also the general bleak economic um, atmosphere. So what are the characteristics of these actions, and how do you interpret them? Yeah, so there was this strike or protest wave from workers in the late 1990s when there was this wage arrears crisis, when so many workers were impacted by wage arrears. And it was kind of strange in terms of sort of world experience that workers were protesting just to get paid. But in some ways, this was, you know, they, they were kind of, you know, it was, it was, they were they're employed, but, but sort of, it was a different form of unemployment in a way, again, a sort of peculiar way for Russia to deal with what was essentially unemployment. But workers around the world usually protest when, not when conditions are bad, but when they're good, when workers aren't afraid of, at least in terms of strikes, when workers aren't afraid of getting fired uh, because the labor market is strong. They have less fear of getting fired, then they can also demand a share of profits. 
So in the 2000s, it looked as if Russia was converging to this practice. The, the economy was booming, and there were different kinds of protests. Uh, pro, there were more pro-cyclical protests. Protest workers were protesting uh, with offensive demands. We want better pay. We want better work conditions. We want a greater share of profits. So they seem to be moving more towards this, this experience elsewhere. But then in 2008, 2009, the situation was reversed again. You got more, not fewer, protests. Uh, and they were defensive again, mainly over wage arrears. And this is happening once again. And I've been, been working on this with a colleague, Irina Olympieva from St. Petersburg. Uh, we've been relying on some data gathered by, by other folks in Russia, particularly Peter Bizukov of the Center for Social and Labor Rights in Russia. And, and he's looked at, uh, he's compiled a database of labor protests going back to 2008. So these aren't simply strikes. These are labor protests of all kinds. And he just basically relies on press and internet sources, but, but he's compiled a considerable database about this, and, and, and others have begun doing this as well. And one of the findings is that, and he started in 2008, if you look from 2008 to 2013, the chance that any month would have, on average, a protest a day, that is 30 protests per month, the chance of that happening over those six years was about 7%. But since, to, since uh, October 2014, the, the, the likelihood is 67%, so about a tenfold increase uh, in protest. And again, some of these other databases are finding similar increases as well. And most of these are, are defensive strikes. They're wildcat strikes. They're over wage arrears. Uh, the, and, and I should say the official strike data from Rustat is, is virtually useless. This is one of the reasons to turn to these alternative databases because the legal restrictions on strikes are so great. Strikes, legal strikes almost never happen. So in 2009, during the last economic downturn, Rostat claimed that there was only one strike that happened the entire year for the entire country. Uh, and and um, so these databases said, yeah, something quite different is happening. So, And now, even though the economic decline, at least if we look at GDP, it seems to be less than it was in 2009, there are more, more protests happening now than then. And again, most of them over wage arrears. So you would think, okay, so wage arrears must be really a lot higher. But if you look at the data, they're a fraction. Wage arrears right now, at least according to Rustat, are a fraction of what they were in 2009, let alone in the 1990s. So there are three possibilities here. One is maybe the data is bad. Maybe Rustat is, is just understating things. But I've talked to folks who, who work in this field and they, they discount that. Uh, another possibility is, well, there are fewer workers that are impacted, but Maybe the wage arrears per worker is higher. So that's a possibility. But the third possibility is that workers are simply running out of patience, that they have sort of less fat on the bones. And so a smaller amount of wage arrears, a smaller time of not getting paid is going to lead to protest. And there is other evidence that, that suggests that that's the case. And you have some pretty prominent examples. You have uh, the the Vostochny Cosmodrome, this this new you know rocket launching center where workers have continually not gotten paid. Uh, uh, building World Cup stadiums, construction workers uh, protesting over wage arrears uh, in several places. Now, when people when you compare this to what happened in the 1990s, it looks quite a bit different. And in the 1990s, there were again large numbers of people with wage arrears. 
and many of the protests became political. But one of the things that happened in the 1990s, and Graham Robertson and others uh, discovered this, was that many of the protests happened with the willingness and support and, and really direction of enterprise directors and regional governors because they wanted to extract more resources from Moscow because of the weakened Yeltsin government. And so, and, and you had people calling for, you know, Yeltsin resign. Now the, the protests are, are much more localized. They are much more economic focused. You, instead of saying, you know, uh, Putin resign, they'll say, President, help us, as the, the truckers did recently. But there's also a process uh, of, of radicalization, just like when the miners struck in 1989 and then struck again in 1991. Once the workers go on strike, they begin to ask those questions of who's to blame and what's to be done. So that right now, the, the examples are small, but there is some sense that workers like the truckers and so on, uh, that they get, they get suppressed, they feel that they're not being, not being heard, and they can become radicalized. And, and it's not that this is leading to a direct, anywhere soon, a direct challenge to, to Putin. But the danger, I think, for the Putin regime is that over time, these protests continue to grow. The main, even state-controlled media will have a, have a harder time ignoring them. The protests start clumping together. Workers that are protesting uh, begin to meet with other workers who are protesting and find common concerns and so on. Uh, and this, again, leads to undercuts this narrative of, of Putin as the guarantor of stability. And, and what, what is the reaction of local authorities and the central government to these protests? Because it, it's quite interesting. They're dealt with a lot differently than, say, you know, uh, liberals protesting for civil and political rights in the center. According to some of the, the researchers looking at this, uh, and there's actually a research center at the FMPR that's, that's doing quite good work on, on, on studying these, these uh, protests. They say that the, most of them work, most of the time the protests happen, workers get their demands at least partially, if not fully satisfied. So there is some benefit to protesting. But the incidence of workers not getting their demands met is, is increasing over time. But there is, there is certainly repression. So the, 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 when the truckers went on strike, first the, you know, the, the Kremlin tried to ignore them, not much attention, again, in the state-controlled media. But as the workers began forming their own association, or a trade union, you could call it, uh, and began to continue their protests, began to talk about you know, converging on Moscow, the repression increased, increased. And particularly as they started meeting with other groups with grievances, the, the, the farmers in, in the South that had, you know, saying that they had their land stolen from them, the uh, Rostov miners who had been on hunger strikes because they had not gotten paid, then the repression increases. And, and on the one hand, it, that, that disperses a significant amount of the, of the workers, the truckers or whatever the group is, but on the other hand, it radicalizes those people that, that remain. And the escalations begin to demand. So the trust truckers began to say, President, help us. Then they said, we want, uh, you know, the, the Minister of Transportation to resign. Uh, and now, even though there are few of them, fewer of them still active, now they're saying, well, maybe it's, it's Prime Minister Medvedev that needs to go. So it's, there's that possibility, at least, of it continuing. 
Now, you, you've already pointed out this in, in our discussion today, and and I quite agree with it because, you know, as many observers argue, uh, when mass protests erupted in Russia five years ago, Putin pitted the rural and Rust Belt Russia against the urban cosmopolitan Russia. Um, and, and as you already mentioned, too, we've recently seen something similar uh, with the election of Donald Trump in the United States. Uh, what do you make of this parallel? And what does it mean for a working class politics? Yeah, well, it's, it's a big question. I mean, it's just having gone through our own elections here, the, all the discussion of this Putin-Trump romance was uh, a lot of it was really quite absurd that Putin was trying to manipulate our elections and so on. But there is this amazing parallel between Trump and, and Putin. Right-wing nationalists, critics of globalization, these sort of macho men of the people. This guy, uh, Sergei Markov, one of Putin's uh, supporters, said, well, they, you know, these come from the same social base, these kind of, you know, small town conservatives and so on. One important difference is that Trump was elected as an outsider to shake things up, to end the status quo. And Putin has been in power now for 16 years. And it's understandable for many Russians. I mean, there's a dramatic correlation. Uh, in the 1990s, there was impoverishment, wage arrears, and so on. And then, boom, there was wage increases. Uh, Russia rises from its knees. And sure, we can say, well, it was mainly high prices of oil, but that's quite a correlation. So there's still a significant reservoir of goodwill for Putin. But it's kind of like the Russia's reserve fund. Uh, you're, you're drawing on that again and again. And the question is, can it can that remain if if wage arrears again become an issue? Uh, you know, is there still the sense that that stability is is what Putin is able to provide? And and what do you think this means for say those who are interested in in a politics of the working class, a class politics, or a, even a left wing political movement? What should how, what do you think? How should they approach this? This problem of, say, rural Rust Belt resentment toward, say, you know, the very people that want to, who espouse a politics that try to incorporate those on a left wing basis. Yeah, it's a very good question. And there are real challenges here. So again, it's, one needs to be careful in drawing any conclusion that this is somehow going to lead to a direct, immediate challenge to Putin. For one, th for one thing, Russian workers, including those that have gone on protest, are very, very reticent to claim political demands. Again, that can change over time once they have been organized and radicalized and so on. But initially, the truckers, uh, lots of groups, uh, political parties, uh, you know, various groups came to them and said, look, you know, let us help you. We'll do anything we can. And they were very reticent that they had, they did not want to be sort of used in, in their view to serve somebody else's political demands. So that's, that's, that's a real challenge. And, and, and there are obviously strong tactical reasons to do that as well. That, that once, and, and this was the same thing with the, with the coal miners back in 1989 in an odd parallel. They, they said that they had a purely economic strike when they first struck because they were very scared that they were going to get repressed. This was the first strike that had happened since, uh, before Stalin came to power. First massive one anyway. And, and so there's a similar reticence now that, that we, if, if, if we, we protest with economic demands, uh, then we're less likely to, you know, we, we're more likely to be heard, less likely to be immediately repressed. Uh, so there, there's that concern as well. 
so in my mind, this isn't, isn't going to lead to any sort of movement anytime soon. These are often, again, wildcat protests. That They are often very local, isolated. Again, when, in monotowns, for instance, uh, when protests happen there, by definition, they're, they're almost you know, always isolated. But it creates a longer-term problem for the regime in that it did not restructure this industrial landscape in the boom years when it had the resources to do it, it had the political capital to do it. So what are you going to do now? Because even if the economy stabilizes, chances are, unless Putin does, you know, invades a country in the Middle East and oil, I'm sorry, Trump you know, invades a country, maybe Putin, uh, unless oil prices spike in some dramatic fashion, the Russian economy is not going to go back to the days of the 2000s. And, and, and what happens? I mean, over the long run, these problems are just going to accumulate and accumulate and accumulate. And the other part of it, too, is that Russian industrial relations is essentially non-functional. Because you have these trade unions that are ineffective, you've closed off legal avenues to strike. Workers have no institutional channels to direct their grievances through. So you get these, these protests that happen. They're illegal. And, and they often lead to these desperate measures. So you see these things, again, that you saw in the 1990s, where workers not simply you know, have meetings or demonstrations, but they block highways, or they go on hunger strikes, or they threaten to throw themselves off cranes, or they open their veins in public so that, that they can get paid wages that are owed them. Uh, and and that's, a, that's a real problem. So it, it's, it, it's hard to see how in those conditions uh, Russia is able to overcome some of these accumulating problems again. Not The monotowns are sort of like the leading edge of it, but just this old industrial geography. How do you, how do you really successfully move to a post-industrial society in those conditions? And finally, how do you see the Russian working class, labor conflicts, and, and politics fitting in a broader global context? Because you know, we've already talked about similar parallels with the United States, but you also have, you know, a lot of labor unrest in China. You have a, a, a labor issues in Europe. How do you fit that into this broader context? It's, it's a huge, uh, but I think very important question. Uh, one temptation is to see Russia or the post-Soviet space generally as, as, as unique. Uh, it has this phenomenon of wage arrears, of really low unemployment, uh, of communist legacies like these old holdover trade unions and the old Soviet factories and so on. But of course, Russia is now part of a larger global capitalist system. And while some people talk about a shrinking Russian workforce uh, for you know, demographic reasons, the larger question is a familiar one of, of again, transforming to a post-industrial society of what will work look like and, and how much work will there be uh, for workers, particularly as they say, you know, at, at some time, at some point, technologies replace uh, workers with machines and so on. And right now, labor is so cheap in Russia and so flexible that capitalists have little incentive to invest in new technology in order to raise productivity. But on the other hand, Russian labor is not so cheap uh, and it has other problems that it's not able to compete with countries like China or countries with even lower wage wages. 
so it's you know it's called a, you know an emerging market, but it's very different from India, China, Brazil, South Africa, and so on. And in the sense that it's not you know it's not industrializing; it's a deindustrializing one. And, and China, in particular, is a, is a very interesting contrast because in China, unlike Russia, they really did create. Uh, they they closed down not only factories but entire regions. Uh, the northeast part of, fa- of of China is just a huge rust belt area, and they've had thousands of protests, huge protests. But at the same time, of course, until recently, Russia, or China, excuse me, was growing by seven, eight, nine percent every year. They were creating entire cities at the same time that they were deindustrializing other ones. And that situation is just not, it's just not happening in, in Russia and it's not going to happen. So is it, is it a question, uh, sorry, one other little question, because I haven't actually asked you about labor migration and this is a big, big, important com- uh, issue. And that is because for China, they were able to have high economic growth. You were able to absorb labor migration from those Rust Belt communities. In Russia, because of the situation, it's not necessarily the case. I mean, you have some migration in the cities. You have migration from, say, Central Asian countries and Moldova and such. But within Russia, too, how does labor migration play into this? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question and one that I'm looking into more. But it, it, so migration has happened. There have there certainly have been workers that have migrated from these industrial centers and, and monotowns and so on from largely from eastern and central parts of of Russia to to the western parts. These are often younger people with with better prospects that the children of some of the working class kids go off to college in different places and and simply don't come back. Uh, So there has been migration. There's also been a big shift of uh, in terms of the portion of population of of from industrial workers to to service workers. So, so there, in, in terms of numbers, there are just many more people working in the service sector now, and, and, and a huge number of people that have migrated internally, in a sense, to the informal economy, uh, including people that are formally employed. So they might, might have a formal job, but since it doesn't pay, they, they, they moonlight and so on. So, so all that has happened, but the problem is you still keep the lights on again in the sense that, uh, that the factories have stayed open. So even if there are somewhat fewer workers there and, and the younger and more vibrant ones have left, uh, you haven't figured out what are you going to do not only with these factories but with the entire communities around them. And then the other part is that there's simply limits to migration because there are problems with housing and there are problems with jobs. There just aren't the alternative jobs. Again, China was very different that way in that you had this, these, these cities that were created out of nothing. So huge opportunities for, for people to move, uh, those that were able to, and those opportunities simply aren't there in Russia. That was Steve Crawley, a professor of politics at Oberlin College, where he researches transitions to democracy and capitalism in Eastern Europe and in the former Soviet Union. He's co-editor with Terry Carraway and Maria Lorena Cook of Working Through the Past, Labor and Authoritarian Legacies in Comparative Perspective, published by Cornell University Press. His most recent article is Russian Labor Protest and Challenging Economic Times in Issue 182 of the Russian Analytical Digest. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. 
The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by making a donation at seansrussiablog.org. I want to thank everybody who's contributed since I've been running the donation appeal in the beginning of the show. I really appreciate it. You can find past shows on iTunes, Mixcloud, and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. The SRB podcast will be on vacation until December 5th. Until then, bye.